Welcome to Thinking About Religion. I'm Dale Tuggy. Everyone sometimes asks the big questions. You're up late at night with a friend, you've had a beer or two, and someone asks, do you think there's really a God? They don't get a lot of press, but there are paid professionals who ask big questions like this for a living. Some of these are philosophers of religion. Some of them, yes, construct, evaluate, revise, and critique arguments for or against the existence of God. But they also ask more fundamental questions like, what sort of being is God supposed to be anyway? Is God supposed to be, as a snarky atheist might put it, an invisible sky man? If not that, then what? Good question. Another good question is how God is supposed to be related to this world we see around us, the world which the sciences seek to understand. Is all of this God's handiwork, or is it God's body? On the other hand, some have suggested that the cosmos just is God, that they're one and the same. And if you take this last option, can you believe in God while thinking that the cosmos is all there is, so that people like Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse Tyson are right about what there is, though they may not register its religious significance? On this Thinking About Religion, my conversation with an accomplished philosopher who's part of a team of professional philosophers who want to investigate questions like these. With me today is Dr. Andre Bukareff, a philosopher at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. He's the co-editor of a new book of essays called Alternative Concepts of God, Essays on the Metaphysics of God. Dr. Bukareff, welcome to Thinking About Religion. Thank you, Dale. It's good to be here. About the title of the book, Dr. Bukareff, some might read that and suppose that this book is about disputes between different sorts of believers in a personal God, disagreements between, say, Christians and Muslims. But the word God here is being used to mean something like a unique, ultimate reality. Is that right? Yeah, that seems right. So then this might be either a personal God, as understood by some traditional religion, or maybe something else. And these authors have a lot of suggestions. Right, that's correct, yeah. Although they fall into certain kinds. So in present-day analytic philosophy, it's fair to say that most philosophers are naturalists. Yes. Philosophy of religion is a small subspecialty, what, maybe 10% of philosophers, something right, like that? Yeah. yeah. But uh, you guys explain in your intro that you think that's been kind of dominated by traditionalists, particularly Christians, and why not consider a wider range of views? So... Tell us about some of this range of views about these alternate conceptions. Like, what kind of broad categories do they fall in? Good. Most of them, I think, are endorsed by philosophers who think of themselves as naturalists, where by naturalism, I just mean a commitment to the idea that basically all that exists is what we can describe, you know, using the language of natural science. So, really, just the universe and its constituents, if you'd like. Many of them are interested in thinking about how we could conceive of any kind of deity or ultimate reality or whatever we want to refer to this as with those constraints in place. The result then ends up being an approach to thinking about the divine that is very different. But in that respect, I think it ends up being something very similar to the way things have sort of developed in thinking about the mind. If you look at the history of philosophy, once upon a time, it was just taken for granted that the mind is to be something that is going to be completely separable from the body. If you were to propose to some folks, uh, let's say in the, you know, in the 18th century, that the mind might be identical with the brain, that may have been regarded as laughable in some circles, or at least regarded as highly controversial. 
But of course, over the last couple hundred years, those kinds of proposals have emerged and the range of proposals that would take the mind to be either identical with or in some way dependent upon in some very deep sense, the brain, those kinds of views are totally acceptable and they're not regarded as being crazy. So I think the thought here was, let's get some people together who are interested in thinking about the world a particular way, namely in naturalistic terms, and see whether or not there can be any fruitful proposals that could be presented that would account for thinking about a deity, if you will, or something divine, God, as it were. So the motivation, again, I think comes from trying to see if there's any sort of possible way to harmonize this commitment to naturalism that we find with many philosophers. And I don't want to speak on behalf of all the philosophers who contributed this. Some of them are not naturalists, I should say, I should point out. But most of them are naturalists. How can you harmonize naturalism with some conception of ultimate reality that you might refer to as God and do so in a way that's, you know, again, you are truthfully referring to it as God. That's, I think, the crucial thing here. So how could you do this? How could this be done? And that's hence, that's where we get some of these different proposals in the book. So you're not just making up a new way to use the word God, like I'm going to call my cat God. I'm going to call, you know, guacamole God. Right, Uh, right, right. No, we're talking about the ultimate reality that others have talked about. Right. It's just that we think the ultimate reality is also natural. It's, It's something compatible with what some people would call a modern scientific view of the world. Yeah. In a way, it's kind of trying to separate religion from supernaturalism. I think that's definitely a motivation for most of the authors that are contributing to the volume. But again, at the end of the day, the conception of the divine that you might end up getting is going to be very, very different from what you get on traditional theism. And the question is going to be, is it going to be sufficient to provide us with what we need to make our religious discourse true or not? Some of them, I don't think, are as concerned about that. They just want to be able to just talk about God. Can I use that term meaningfully? Whereas others, say, for instance, uh, two of the contributors to the volume, John Bishop and Ken Persick, they're very interested in presenting a conception of God that is consistent with theological realism, with an approach to God talk where it's truthful. I could say God is love. I can say God loves me. I could say all these various sorts of things. But the conception of deity that they put forth ends up being one that is impersonal. It's radically different, but they still want something that is going to be sufficient to actually provide us with a basis for the way in particular Christians think about the divine. So that, I think, is one of the things that makes this really unique, is you end up getting some contributors to the volume who not only are motivated by naturalism, but by an attempt to try to uh, harmonize a commitment to ontological naturalism with a set of Christian commitments, for instance. And that would be true, of course, I think, with people who, let's say, are in other religious traditions. But John Bishop stands out in this respect because of his actually being somebody who regards himself as a devout Christian. And speaking of Christians, one of the chapters is kind of purely negative and critical. Uh, Dr. Brian Leftow of Oxford University, and he's uh, pressing on these naturalistic conceptions of God and Mm -hmm. arguing that they can't be religiously adequate because it makes no sense to worship a being like this. That was a very interesting chapter, kind of narrowly hammering away at some closely related points. And he's arguing basically that some of the other proposals are metaphysically incoherent, that it's just not possible that it could turn out to be that this God, which has been talked about, should be the material cosmos. Most of the book is very metaphysical in the sense that they're trying to deal with the basic underlying thought of it all. But as you said, there's a religious concern as well. 
In a way, the most passionately religious essay was the last one yes. by Dr. Eric Steinhardt of William Patterson University. And he advocates thankfulness towards and even neo-pagan rituals in honor of the natural world and of various natural processes as understood by naturalism. So not the natural world as the manifestation of the deities and the pantheon and things like this. Right. But, uh, you know, as whatever science would tell us, that's what we're going to call divine. That's what we're going to. I'm not sure he uses the word worship, but that's what we're going to orient our lives around. At least yeah, at least reverence in some way. Right. Have, have a reverential attitude towards. Yeah. What did you think about his hope that naturalists who want to maintain a sort of spirituality with respect to the cosmos can join forces with various neo-pagan religions? It's an interesting proposal. My own inclination is to see if a sort of a, a naturalistic approach can be rendered consistent with one of the great religious traditions, you know, and I, and I realize that's sort of question pegging by calling them great, but at least one of the major religious traditions. So whether or not they can fit comfortably within, let's say, the Abrahamic religious traditions, I think they can easily be made compatible with, say, Buddhist thought, for instance. But the really interesting question to me is whether or not I can be a devout Jew or a devout Christian or a devout Muslim and endorse a view of God like this. Uh, so I think that uh, Eric's proposal in the book is really, really fascinating, very interesting. But my own fear, and now here I'm just speaking for myself, is that the kind of proposal that he offers is one that um, some folks might really expect from a naturalist. Namely, if you're committed to naturalism and you want to be religiously devout, well, what other option do you have but to move towards, basically to shift backwards and move toward basically pre-Abrahamic ways of thinking of the divine or ways that are completely separable from that. I don't wish to suggest that the proposal that he's offering is in some sense incoherent. It makes perfect sense <laughs> in many respects. But again, to me, the more interesting project and the one that I feel is, if you will, I, I, I feel the greatest sense of urgency to try to present, uh, make a case for, is the one that connects it with, if you will, the sort of dominant uh, religious traditions that we find. Those are the people I think you have to convince are going to be the people who are within these various religious traditions that do have such a dominant role, both in our culture and in other cultures around the planet, to convince them that these sorts of approaches should be taken seriously. I've had folks, when I suggest that I'm working on these kinds of projects and I have an interest in this, that I take them very seriously, not just as something to criticize, let's say. The immediate response that I get from many folks is, well, then... You can't actually then be someone who is religiously devout, more specifically, be, let's say, a good Christian or a good Jew or whatever. That's, I think, a more interesting challenge. And that's where I find the work of somebody like Dr. John Bishop, whom I mentioned earlier, that's where I find his work to be particularly fascinating because he is doing his best to try to, if you will, sort of rethink the concept of God along lines that are, again, consistent with naturalism, but still allow him to make sense of his practices as a devout Christian. So, Dr. Bucharef, give us a general characterization of pantheism and penentheism. Very broadly, pantheists are going to identify God with the world. If I'm a naturalist, I'm going to be identifying God with the universe. Now, this does not mean that the parts of the universe are divine. I think it's important that we keep that in mind. The pantheist is not guilty of the fallacy of division. It's not as if, you know, because the whole thing is divine, each part of it's divine. That would be a bit like to say that, you know, you've got a system of neurons and that's the brain. And so then each one of those neurons is the brain, right? 
they're not going to be making that sort of claim. It's just a claim that we have this integrated, unified system that we can call God, and that's the universe. <laughs> and it's an identity relation that God has to the universe. On the other hand, the panentheist, they come in a lot of different stripes. And again, depending upon how we carve things up. Some people who get called panentheists might be called pantheists by some other people. Because in one sense, panentheism could be said to be a kind of pantheism. Panentheists are going to say, God is identical with everything that exists, <laughs> right? If there's more than just the physical universe, then it would include whatever there is outside of the physical universe on most approaches. Again, not, not every single one of them, but most of them are going to say that God and the universe are such that the universe is a part of God, more specifically, a proper part of God. That's on most approaches. On some approaches, though, God is a part of the universe, but not a proper part. The universe constitutes God. You have the universe, and the universe and God stand in a relationship that's not identity, but it's such that you've got all the stuff, which is the universe, and again, it's organized in this particular kind of way, and there's going to be certain things that are going to be true of it, and that together constitutes God. But they don't share the same essential properties. There could be changes in God that don't affect the universe and vice versa. So panentheists will often use a mind-body analogy or yes. a soul-body analogy yes. where God is like the soul of the world, very closely related to it, but right. not exactly the same thing. Yeah. And here it's important to note that there are panentheists who are naturalists and then panentheists who are not naturalists. Whereas I think that when you look at the history of pantheism, you know, the tendency I think has really been towards a kind of naturalism. And that's even true of the variants of pantheism that just say that all of reality is mental. It's just all of reality. That includes the physical universe. It's just all mental. Whereas the panentheists, you take somebody like, say, Charles Hartshorn. It's not clear to me that Charles Hartshorn, who was a very prominent proponent of panentheism in the mid-20th century and even into the late 20th century, he, he died uh, in the early aughts. He was, he was over 100 mm -hmm. years old. Mm -hmm. Hartshorn's conception of God, he actually quite literally uses the soul body analogy to try to illustrate what God's relationship with the universe is like. It's really like a Cartesian mind and its body. And actually, even there, it's, it's, I have to be very careful. It's more like the two of them are this sort of this compound thing, right? So, so together, those things make up God. So you've got the universe and God, because if the universe doesn't exist, God doesn't exist on this account. So they are essentially related to each other, according to Hartshorn. But God is something more than the universe. And in that respect, it looks like it's not a kind of naturalism. It's, there's something over and above the physical universe, right? That's more than that. And so in that respect, I think it ends up being a kind of non-naturalist position, depending upon how we think of naturalism, okay? So I'm thinking of naturalist along lines where, again, the physical universe is all there is. So panentheism, in a lot of cases, is a kind of theism if theism is belief in like a perfect personal God. Yes. Panentheism can very often be a kind of it. Pantheism, not so much. Yeah. It depends on who's talking. Yeah. Tell us about classical theism. This is the type of view that you're looking for an alternative to in right. this book. There are going to be a few characteristics of classical theism that I think are going to be central. The first is that God is an immaterial substance. An immaterial being. An immaterial being, right, exactly, who is ontologically distinct from the universe. God's relationships to the universe are not as, let's say, again, a body to a soul, let's say, or at least not in any sort of deep sense. Some people sometimes use that metaphor, but again, it's just a metaphor. So there's that claim. So God is, again, ontologically distinct from the universe. The second thing is typically traditional theists are going to say that God has the range of so-called omni-properties. God is going to be omnipotent, 
omniscient, morally perfect. You could add other omni properties if you'd like, but no, those are basically the core, right? Again, all powerful, all knowing, and then morally uh, impeccable. The other one would be that God created the universe ex nihilo. Right. Creator of the yeah, world creator. from nothing, not yeah, made of yeah. any uh, yeah. rearranging previous matter. Again, that's related to the universe being distinct from God. And then the final one would be that God is uh, an agent who intervenes in the affairs of the universe. There's a lot of different accounts of how that's supposed to work out, but God still acts providentially in some way uh, in the universe. And that, of course, would be related to God's being omnipotent and so on, and being, of course, the creator, right? So on many of these sorts of accounts, to creation ends up being sort of an ongoing process, right? So it's not just that God created ex nihilo, but God continues to be creative in the universe. Dr. Bukareff, as far as people's religious interests are concerned, it's very easy to see the appeal of a being like that. This sort of God is morally perfect, and the universe is God's handiwork. This is the kind of being to whom it would make sense to pray, and who might even take an interest in answering your prayer. And if they answer it, they could do so maybe with miraculous powers. This seems like quite a bounty. So what are the philosophical concerns that drive people to look for some other conception of God? I think the starting point, and here now, this is going to be autobiographical, two concerns, I think, that people have. Uh, One is the problem of evil. You know, we see all this evil in the world, both moral evils, where now you've got moral agents who behave in bad ways towards one another. And of course, natural evils, where by natural evils, I mean, say, for instance, you know, things like earthquakes. What always stands out in my mind is an earthquake in Mexico City in the mid 80s that was just really devastating that resulted in the deaths of just thousands of people owing to the poor construction of the buildings. Again, this was before a lot of the buildings ended up coming up to code with, you know, the way we have things with, with earthquake standards and whatnot. Or even to take another example, here's one of the most, I think, salient examples is offered by William Rowe, a philosopher who, who actually had theological training, who was an atheist. Rowe gives the example of a, uh, of a non-human animal in this case. So there's a deer who ends up dying in a forest fire, but the death of the, the deer ends up taking, right, it's burned horribly and it takes days to die. So it's suffering. It's experiencing a great amount of suffering. And it doesn't serve any clear moral purpose. It's not as if uh, you can say, well, God wanted us, wanted us to have free will. And so because of that, we end up doing bad things to one another. And I think cases like that in particular end up being the ones that I think push some people to start considering alternatives to traditional theism. So for instance, they might give up on, say, omnipotence or uh, omniscience. And then they might make the move to go from there to then think, well, okay, if God's not omnipotent or omniscient, then in what sense can God be regarded as, you know, someone who really has a sort of proximity to what the world is experiencing, if you will? I don't, I don't know exactly how to put this, but, you know, you have the kind of concern, divine concern that people like to talk about at times. And what better way to account for that than by saying that God is not just closely related to the world insofar as God has a concern for the world, but the world is part of God. The universe is part of God. So the suffering of the deer now is something that God is also experiencing. So we get these kinds of motivations. And I think this is what I think draws some people, at least who have a theistic starting point to start to take seriously some of these alternatives, right? They think about some things like the problem of evil in particular. I think natural evils are particularly problematic here. You can't just appeal to free will, let's say, or something like that. And at least in my own case, actually, 
I found my own self first giving up on the Omni properties and then moving towards thinking in terms of God as actually being someone who's a co-sufferer. And again, in a very deep sense, not in the sense of being, let's say, moved by my suffering, but someone who quite literally is experiencing the suffering with me or with, in this case, the deer, because that is an aspect of God. So I think it's considerations like evil, for instance, that bring a lot of people to this. And this is actually the consideration that John Bishop brings forth in his pivotal, his, again, really important 1998 essay on can there be alternative concepts of God? He appeals to the problem of evil as being a reason for us to dispense with the omni-properties and try to start thinking about a different conception of God. Now, there's that concern. I think the other concern, though, that people have comes from, of course, science. And naturalism, which you mentioned earlier. And I think this is true, especially for many philosophers. The appeal of naturalism, I mean, it's it's very appealing in many respects. So if you find yourself attracted to naturalism, yet you have religious inklings, right? You might want to try to think of a way to harmonize the two. Now, someone might say at the end of the day, what you end up with is a dressed up atheism. That's, That's a whole nother question. But for the time being, I think it's important just to see how concerns about making science compatible with religion, and then also a concern about being troubled by the problem of evil. Those two things, I think for a lot of people, and I, and here I'm actually speaking for myself, draw them into, uh, thinking about alternatives to traditional theism. Before we leave the topic of evil, I mean, to move from theism to pantheism or panentheism, in a way that's kind of tinkering with the relationship between God and the cosmos, making there be less separation. But lessening that separation, I mean, is that really going to answer arguments from evil to atheism? Because it looks like you would still have to deny either that God is perfectly good or that he's all-knowing or that he's all-powerful. So either he doesn't want there to be only good or he can't bring it about or doesn't know about it or something like that. I mean, somebody who has compassion does literally suffer along with the one whom he's having compassion on, right? Right, right. So I guess the idea is that by moving the suffering kind of within God's being, this is going to answer the atheist concerns? That's a good question. I think that some people think it will then answer the atheist concerns. I think that that might be true of, and now again, go back to somebody like, let's say, Charles Hartshorn and process theists, because they try to present a kind of theodicy, a way of accounting for evil and justifying God by appealing to the proximity of God to the suffering, quite literally, again, the suffering being internal to God. I think that they think that this will at least account for that. I'm not so sure of that. For me, it ends up being less about trying to respond to the concerns of the atheist and more about trying to show, at least make sense of things for myself. <laughs> again, that's, that, that is uh, totally you know, autobiographical again when it comes to evil. So I think that the problem of evil, I think that by dispensing with the omni properties, at least, you know, let's say dumping omnipotence, right? Let's suppose that God is not, you know, powerful enough to, to deal with this. I'm, I'm not actually sure you can get rid of omniscience. That's another question. But, but um, and suppose one even gives up on moral perfection. Again, I don't even think you have to do that. That might be sufficient, right? And then you add to it that God is compassionate. And you, so you now you rethink, let's say, uh, you know, God as being someone who has a capacity for certain kinds of reactive emotions. Because, I mean, traditionally... Again, I don't think this is part of traditional theism, but if you look at the medievals, you look at theology that came out of the Reformation, 
the theologians for most of Christian history thought of God as being someone who doesn't have any kind of change. And so having an emotional reaction to what's happening in the world is going to be something that is to even suggest that is verboten. You don't do that, right? But, you know, when you get then into the 20th century and you start having some traditional theists who start saying, no, I think we need to rethink the idea of a suffering God. That's a promising move. And that might be sufficient to account for the problem of evil. Again, coupled with Again, perhaps giving up on omnipotence, or maybe you give up on, on omniscience because, again, you might have a good reason for giving up on omniscience, or at least omniscience as implying foreknowledge, right? So God couldn't anticipate these things because there are no truths about the future, let's say. Okay, I think any of those kinds of maneuvers might help with evil. In my own case, by having God be not just a, a co-sufferer, but suffering in the process— brings me some comfort, but that doesn't really help me respond to the atheist. In my own case, moving towards pantheism or panentheism is motivated more by a commitment to trying to harmonize religious commitments with a naturalistic worldview. So that's in my own case. But again, if you look at, say, John Bishop's 98 article, in that article, he really is primarily taking up um, evil as being his main concern. But he doesn't, in that essay, bring up uh, embodiment. That is to say, God is somehow being embodied by the universe. So yeah, so I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you on that when it comes to whether or not you have to make that kind of move to actually account for evil, and then if, more specifically for how it is that God can be regarded as being compassionate and, if you will, involved with what we're experiencing when we suffer. And there are traditional theists who, for instance, have defended more recently the idea that omniscience, the idea of God being all-knowing, implies that God also has omnisubjectivity. So, for instance, Linda Zagzebski, who's a traditional theist, she has defended the idea of omnisubjectivity, the idea that God being all-knowing also then knows in a variety of different ways. And so, for instance, now God would actually know the contents of, let's say, the deer's mind as it's suffering if you will, from a first-person perspective, right? In the same way that the deer would know it. So I think that those kinds of maneuvers are ones that people who would describe themselves as some type of traditional theist can make. And those strike me as being really perfectly uh, fine ways to respond to the problem of evil. I think, though, once we start thinking in terms of other sorts of, let's say, commitments that we might have to things like naturalism, we might feel ourselves pushed further towards thinking of God's relationship to the universe as being something a little bit more like what we find on pantheism or panentheism. When thinking about religion returns, I asked Dr. Bukharev why there aren't any Buddhist or Hindu philosophers in this book. And we also hear about an interesting Christian contributor, one who thinks that discourse about God is true and important and fictional. Hindu and Buddhist philosophers would endorse what we would call versions of panentheism or pantheism. Some readers would wonder why there weren't Hindu and Buddhist philosophers included in the project. Ideally, we would have had some. I mean, we didn't we didn't approach the project thinking, all right, we're going to you know get 
X number of, of Christian philosophers, X number of Jewish philosophers, Buddhist philosophers, and so on. At that point, when we were deciding who to invite to be involved in the workshop, we wanted to bring people who already had made significant contributions to the debate so far. And that's why, you know, we picked people like John Leslie, who doesn't identify with any particular religious tradition. Of course, John Bishop, but with John Bishop, it really just goes right back to a paper he wrote in 1998 called Can There Be Alternative Concepts of God? In many respects, he's one of those folks who gets the ball rolling when it comes to analytic philosophers of religion thinking about alternatives to traditional theism. So it was just a no-brainer. You got to invite John Bishop. And that's what happened with all the rest of the folks that we invited. It was, these are people who have either engaged with alternative conceptions of God critically or have presented alternatives themselves and there was no real thought about their religious affiliation. I think ideally moving forward in the future, it would be nice to actually bring some of those other voices into the conversation, especially in light of what we say in the introduction to the book. One of the reasons why Eugene and I in particular are interested in thinking about alternative conceptions of God is because it opens up some more space for a more global perspective in philosophy of religion, for thinking about the concept of the divine, period, not the Christian conception of God or the Judeo-Christian conception of God as it were, but thinking about just the divine, when you now look at some of these alternative conceptions of God, they can, if you will, function as bridges between conceptions of ultimate reality that you might find in Asian religions and the concept of God that we find in uh, Western theism. And so we discuss this by talking about, for instance, the concept of Tian in Chinese thought, and then Western theism, and then the work of a particular philosopher of religion, Mark Johnston, whose work we try to make a case for as being such that if you look at his conception of God, it allows us to sort of bring these two sort of conceptions of ultimate reality in conversation with one another. One of which is a putative account of God, versus this one, which is just of ultimate reality, not described using theological language. Yet nonetheless, the two do seem to have, uh, there's some interesting points at which they might be able to meet and converse with one another. But again, you have to have a bridge. And I think that alternative conceptions of God allow for that bridge. Now what we need to do though, is bring in some of these voices from the non-theistic religions. And of course, have them in conversation with the people who are coming at, approaching either Either these approaches to God critically or defending them, getting those folks into conversation with each other. And again, I think that these concepts of God help in actually at least getting that conversation going. At the end of the day, it might be the case that there won't be any points of agreement. <laughs> That's okay, though. Getting people actually just in conversation with each other to think about whether or not there is, if you will, some sort of core conception of the divine that is shared across religions is something that we find very interesting and other people have tried in the past, like John Hick, but I think that he did it sort of as a one-man show. What we're trying to do is get a bunch of folks together to try to think about this. It's not surprising that the people who have published a lot on this type of project would be Westerners, I think, because there are a couple of concerns here that are distinctive of the modern West. What about naturalism? Don't we all have to be naturalists now? That's kind of the big bully on the block as far as worldviews go nowadays, at least in the educated Western world. And do we need to move away from a personal deity conception? I mean, someone who's a very traditional Buddhist or Hindu may not have either one of those concerns. They, they right. might not be naturalists or anything close to it, and they might not be worried, you know, if they're Advaita Vedanta Hindus or something, they're not really worried about the ultimate being being personal because they don't think it is. Right, Brahman right. Brahman is, is not a he. Dr. Bucharef, 
I don't think any of the authors in this book really discuss miracles or religious teachings that are based on alleged divine revelation. Is skepticism about miracle claims and about claims to divine revelation a part of the motivation for many of these authors? I think for some, uh, I think when it comes to revelation claims, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, again, if you look at the paper by Bishop and Perzik, in there, that's the one paper that I think is most explicitly where they refer to Christian teaching. And so they actually do recite the scriptures. Uh, in fact, I'm even thinking about um, the passage in 1 John where it, it said that God is love. And that's actually a big part of their account of God. God quite literally is love. So I, I think that when it comes to revelation, depending upon how we understand it, I don't know if everyone who is working on these sorts of approaches to God is inimical towards revelation claims. Now, as opposed to understanding miracle claims, right? Claims about miracles, literally, I think that there's going to be a tendency on the part of most I don't want to say all who endorse variants of pantheism and panentheism to treat them as a myth. And, and I think that's even true of people who are not, again, not naturalists. I'm thinking here right now of some process theists who I would not regard as being naturalists. Like, for instance, again, these are theologians like John Cobb. And I remember reading Cobb back when I, when I did my master's degree in theology. And, uh, you know, Cobb was treating those as mythical claims, you know, claims about things like the resurrection and whatnot. So I, I think that um, I think that there's going to be a tendency on the part of the people who are working on this, who are, let's say, identifying with a particular religious tradition to basically line up on, when you think about the conservative to liberal spectrum when it comes to theology or the traditional to non-traditional spectrum, they're going to be very non-traditional. I do think there is a tendency to at least treat a lot of these sorts of claims as as myth or uh, in non-realist terms or even fictionalist terms. To to take one of the authors in, in the book, Robin Lepoitevin, Robin Lepoitevin, you know, a lot of people just know him as an atheist, but right. he's also a Christian. <laughs> so, right. but he's a fictionalist. Yeah. So he treats it all as just fiction, but they're truths, but they're truths within the fiction, right? So it's it's really sort of interesting the kind of maneuvering that you find on the part of some of the people who identify as religious who have contributed to the volume uh, when it comes to their thinking about these sorts of things. That's to say they either stay quiet about it, Bishop, or when they actually say anything about it, like let's say Lepoitevin, it's, well, it's a fiction. <laughs> so, but they do recognize, and, and Lepoitevin says this in his essay, he recognizes that there is going to be some genuine tension when it comes to how, let's say, the fictionalist and the person who is reading the scriptures, the same scriptures, but treating some of the claims that are made in there about miraculous events, literally, that those two people in conversation with each other, there's going to be a tension there. There's going to be a tension there, and it might be irresolvable. And that has some really interesting implications now for when you think about the life of people in the pews and how it is that they actually can carry on together, especially when these are people who also, who let's say are both identifying as, let's say in Lepoitevin's case, an Anglican, you know, Christians who have some sort of shared vision of some sort, but what exactly is shared in that case, right? Uh, so it's- Interesting. Yeah, I was aware that Lepoitevin had written a book entitled Arguing for Atheism, Yeah, yeah. but I actually didn't know about his personal views or his church-going habits. Is his perspective that there's nothing wrong with the traditional Christian concept of God except for just this one thing, that he's real? <laughs> is that, or is he also more of a panentheist or something? Uh, that's a really good question. I, I never brought that up to him and <laughs> talking with him about it. So that's, that's something I can't answer for him. 
my guess though is just going off of other things that he's written. And I mean, he's written things on the incarnation and, and a lot of topics that, I mean, that wouldn't make any sense if, if one thought about it just as like, well, this guy's a total, he's just, you know, why would an atheist be interested in these, these, these sorts of questions? Well, it makes sense that he would be interested in them owing to, I think in part, owing to uh, identifying with a particular religious tradition. Now, as for, you know, any sort of conception of God, I, I, to my knowledge, he's just a straightforward atheist. But again, people might say pantheists are kind of atheists. So I would be very curious myself to know if he is committed to any kind of pantheism or panentheistic conception of God. I, I would be very curious about that myself. Maybe it's something I should take up with him in the future. <laughs> so Lapointevin is a Christian atheist. And for him, the justification for this participation, I guess, is uh, is basically practical, right? It's yeah, I think being so. part yeah. of a community. Yeah, these are enriching things, I guess, to kind of imagine. And he's kind of reinterpreting the whole thing as uh, as being a really neat fiction, which I guess is not all that weird. I mean, think about somebody for whom Star Wars is practically a religion. Sometimes people will put this on their government form that they're a Jedi or something. Right, and, right, right. And they know it's fiction, but it's still taking this role in their life that's so big right. that um, they don't mind that it's fiction. They still, they just right. like to live in this imaginary world. Yeah. And I mean, and to take the perspective of the person who is like that for a second, because I mean, in some respects, that actually comes close to myself because, you know, I, I actually think that some variant of pantheism is probably correct. I want a version where God is understood as personal to work, but it might not. So at the end of the day, the situation that I'm faced with is very similar, I think, to Lapointevin, right? So now I, I wind up being a non-realist about a bunch of claims, yet I find my commitments, my Christian commitments to be something that end up being important, right? It's, it's part of sort of a way of life. And I think some of that has to do with how one sees one's connectedness to others and one's purpose and the way that one ought to conduct oneself with respect to others. So in some ways, I think it ends up looking very similar to the way that some Buddhists are, for, let's say, for instance, you know, who, let's say, are not going to be metaphysically reflective, or they're going to say, well, I don't buy into any of this, the, the metaphysical picture here, it's really un, unclear, or I don't accept it, yet there's this sort of, right, I want to work to mitigate suffering and so on, and they're involved in various sorts of Buddhist practice. Or again, to take another example, let's say some reformed Jews for whom, right, you still have a way of life, yet they identify as atheists. This is effectively to agree with what you're saying. But then it's also to go further and say that there is a kind of sense of connectedness with the past, with people today, and then also a, a sense of how one sees one's connectedness to the rest of the world that you get in virtue of being committed to a particular uh, religious tradition. Again, I don't think that's going to apply for every single religious tradition. I can imagine somewhere that wouldn't be true. But at least that's true, I think, of when I think of the Abrahamic religions, or again, some, some you know, when, you, when, I, when I think of, again, the big, you know, Asian religions, when I think of, let's say, Hinduism and Buddhism. It doesn't strike me as being entirely crazy, let's say. It is kind of like Reformed Judaism, or like 19th, 20th century liberal Christianity yeah. in a lot of ways. Yes, absolutely, yeah. When thinking about Religion Returns, I asked Dr. Bukareff about his chapter in this book, in which he argues for what he calls the embodied God thesis.
Dr. Bucharef, let's just talk a little bit more about your chapter. In that chapter, you object to certain features of classical theism. In your view, God has to be in some way located within space and time in order to be a cause of events within space and time. And and uh, it seems like it's kind of central to the idea of God, at least a personal God, that God should be a cause of some things that happen. Right. And you actually call it the embodied God thesis. I wonder if it's, though, still within the range of what you and your co-editor call classical theism. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's supposed to be part of a traditional view of God that God is omnipresent, that God is present everywhere. Yeah. Some Christians and other theists have held the view, especially in the last hundred years, that given that time exists, there's nowhere else to be. So if there is time, then God has to be in time. Right. But then it looks like he's going to be in time and space, so... How is it that this view in your in your mind entails having a body? Like, yeah, that's in what good. sense does, yeah. does God have a body? In an early draft of it, I actually called it divine materialism. And then I thought, you know, no, that's a misstatement. It's actually a more modest thesis, which is just this divine embodiment thesis. Now, I think that that, and I say this in the paper, I think that, that that means that we should accept some version of pantheism or panentheism. It's just because those end up being the clearest variants of this idea. But you're right. A lot of people who've been working on omnipresence, for instance, in recent years, and I think here's in particular of Robert Oakes, his work, unfortunately, has again, not received the attention it deserves. In 1970s, he wrote a paper arguing that theists should be pantheists because of the doctrine of omnipresence. But then he backtracked. He, he took a few steps back and said, no, 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 no. The universe is internal to God in a very deep sense, right? That's to say, you know, there is this sort of connectedness that God has to the universe where the universe is, right? Again, he uses the picture of the universe being internal to God and he elaborates on this, but how this involves God's, in effect, locatedness. And so I think that what I do in my paper is perhaps consistent with a proposal like Robert Oak's account of omnipresence, where the universe is quite literally internal to God in some sense. Exactly how that's fleshed out, right, is a matter of, right, some, we have to work out some of the details here. It's like space is a divine attribute? Insofar as it ends up being an attribute, it ends up not being an essential attribute. You can talk about God using spatial predicates and do that truthfully, but it's not in virtue of there being some properties that God has essentially, let's say, that would make God and the universe, let's say, being one substance. <laughs> Right. He calls that thesis theistic consubstantialism. And he says theistic internalism does not entail theistic consubstantialism. Theistic consubstantialism, the way that Oakes uses that term, is just the thesis that God and the universe are made of the same stuff. And you've got the same stuff under two different descriptions, basically. But that and doesn't I, make it, them the same thing. Well, it at least makes them made of the same stuff. But the concepts are not, they're not interchangeable, of course, right? So and that's actually the idea you find in Spinoza. It's a kind of double aspect theory, right? Where you've got under one description, it's God. Under another description, it's the universe. Um, and again, in virtue of what is it divine? In virtue of what is it just the universe? Well, that's where I think panentheistic and pantheistic stories could say something very different about consubstantialism. But consubstantialism on its own, I think, just implies that either pantheism or panentheism is true. Again, just the idea that God and the universe share the same stuff. And again, that stuff is quite literally, it's an essential part of God. That's what I think is crucial for consubstantialism. Uh, versus, again, internalism says that it's not essentially part of God. Internalism that is not consubstantialism is going to just say that stuff is part of God, but insofar as it ends up being part of God or internal to God, it is only so in a non-essential way. It could be a part that he's voluntarily taken on just exactly. by creating. By creating, exactly. And then by placing God's self in communion with, as it were. 
I have a recent paper where I argue that we have to be committed to theistic consubstantialism. Let's say it's one stuff, but that's beside the point. What I do in the paper that you mentioned, I think is perfectly consistent with exactly what you're saying. And I think with what Oakes has been trying to articulate since the mid 1980s. I mean, he has, again, like I said, he has a series of papers like this where he contrasts the kind of proposal that he has with what he calls spinozistic pantheism, which would, again, just be the idea that God and the universe are just this one substance. So the proposal that I offer, though, that has to do with just a kind of omnispatiality, I think is consistent with traditional theism, so long as you say that you have to then accept the idea that the universe and any properties of the universe are not properties that God has essentially. Again, they're just borrowed properties of God's, as it were. That could be consistent with a version of traditional theism. I think some traditional theists will balk at that kind of suggestion, though. Um, I don't think they'll like it. but Something like this has been argued, again, not just by Oakes, but by some other people recently in the literature. I think Richard Swinburne endorses something similar to this. He flirts with it, at least, in the coherence of theism. It's not the same proposal that Oakes has, let's say. I know that Hud Hudson has something similar. So there are some philosophers of religion who have flirted with some similar ideas. Not the same as Oakes, but again, similar ideas consistent with my argument that God must be embodied. The devil's in the details when it comes to, in what sense must God be embodied? That's the crucial question here. And really, pantheistic and panentheistic conceptions of God should be taken seriously. But I think it takes additional work on behalf of, let's say, pantheism and panentheism to move us from, let's say, something like what I call, you know, this embodiment thesis to something like pantheism or panentheism. And that's what I try to do actually in this recent paper of mine where I respond to Oakes and this idea about internalism being separable from consubstantialism. Dr. Bucher, if another interesting piece in this book is by a leading philosopher of religion called John Schellenberg. Mm -hmm. And I suppose one of the things he's famous for is pushing an argument for atheism based on divine hiddenness, mm -hmm. which is basically people really desperately want to experience God or find evidence of God, and those people never do, as far as we can tell. And so doesn't that show that there isn't a perfect being who would be like this perfect parent? And yet when you read his writings on that, you realize that he's not exactly a standard issue atheist either. Right. He talks about something called ultimism, which is something he's written about in a couple of books as well. Mm -hmm. What is ultimism and how does it relate to these other isms that we've been discussing? I think it's best to think of ultimism in terms of what it's not. <laughs> okay. Right. So ultimism, of course, it's not theism in any sort of standard sense. Ultimism resists any sort of characterization of ultimate reality along pantheistic or panentheistic lines. Again, why? Because what you're doing is, is you're providing some sort of clear constraints on how to think about this object of ultimate concern, as it were. Yeah, he says it's ultimate in three ways. Right. Ultimism, he says, is belief in something that has what he calls triple transcendence. And transcendence just is a fancy word that means beyond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Metaphysical transcendence, axiological transcendence, and soteriological transcendence. The soteriological means it has to be something in relation to which we get what it is that humans need. Yeah, right, right, right. Get the cure or get saved in whatever sense yeah. we need to be saved. And then axiologically transcendent is that it's Source the of most value. valuable right. thing that we can pursue. 
and metaphysical transcendence just puts it beyond the natural world. So I take it that he's not a naturalist. He thinks that even if it turns out there's arguments against theism traditionally understood, that he still thinks ultimism is something that should be really considered. It's basically just sort of you fill out the details with time. Yeah, that's right. And in a way that we can't predict right now. There's a part of science that has really got him thinking. He calls it belief in deep time. Right. Just like space is unimaginably bigger than we would have thought before we had, say, modern astronomy and cosmology. So deep time, these unimaginable stretches of time. And maybe we're just in the fetal stage of human development. And, right. you know, in a million years, we'll think of some better way to relate to the ultimate. So his ultimism is kind of like a skeleton it's a less specific belief. In his mind, it's going to open the door to non-theistic religious understanding, but maybe it'll turn to something we know not what as we go on. So isn't it consistent with panentheism? I think with a variant of panentheism, yeah, definitely. Schoenberg's account is just so curious to me. In evolutionary religion, he presents this idea uh, of ultimism. And I remember just scratching my head trying to figure out what is this? And again, that's why I think it's best to think about it in terms of what it's not. I know he doesn't want it to be like John Hicks' conception of the real. Because he up, says like no positive concept can apply to that. And right. he is applying these concepts right, that we mentioned. Right. Yeah. So pantheism and panentheism fill in the details too much, at least as they're presented today. They fill in too many details about the metaphysics of the divine. Whereas if you get somebody like Hick, it's this really sort of uh, ambiguous kind of, you know, you know, conception of God that is so... It's, it's not it, clear why it's religiously relevant. Exactly. Yeah, right. It's, yeah. it's just other. Yeah. And that's it. It's not even put in terms of something like you find with thinkers like Tillich who talk about ground of being or something like that. It's not even like that. It really is a very sort of... Uh, we know not what entity that again, right. We approach in different ways in the different religions. The other thing too, I think with his account that makes it interesting and, and curious at the same time is like Hicks account though, it's not going to be something you can wed to any particular religious tradition. In fact, what I think he wants it to be though, now this is contra Hick is something that is an alternative to all these other options, right? So it's basically, as opposed to looking for something that might be behind all the world religions, let's say, it's an alternative to the world religions, as, mm -hmm. I, as I understand it. Yeah. So now when you start thinking about the religious significance of his proposal, what you have here is something that's being put forward by a philosopher that is not just oh, a metaphysically interesting story or something that might allow, let's say, a liberal Christian or a liberal Jew or someone in another religious tradition to make sense of their sort of religious commitments along naturalistic lines. No, instead, it's something else. This is just another proposal, if you will. It's a, it's a third way, as it were. That's where I think it's most interesting is that you've got this proposal being put forward that is so unlike anything else that I've seen before, yet it's also something that is meant to be considered and taken seriously as this alternative. Yet at the same time, as I recall, he doesn't have an attitude towards the world religions that is, if you will, inimical. I don't think there's any animus towards them. He's just... Uh, He's too skeptical, I think. He yeah. thinks they're just making too many claims yeah. without a good amount of evidence. Right. If you think of religion as something that is not static, but is dynamic, and that has to do with a process of discovery, if you will, 
I think he thinks that this is where it's all going to go, right? In other words, as I, as I understand it, I think this is where he thinks it all should go, is towards something like this. And our understanding of it will expand with time. Again, when you think about religious traditions, they are trying to do that very thing to get to that. And those are various sorts of approaches to it, but they're not hitting it. And as, as I see it, I think he thinks that these, these things will ultimately converge in some way. The world religions would be sort of, if you will, moving more and more towards something like what you get with ultimism. I don't know how plausible that is, <laughs> or if I'm being entirely fair to him on that point. So, When thinking about religion returns, a warning about idolatry, and we'll also hear about how this multi-year research project started and where it's going. Dr. Bukharev, I noticed in your chapter there was an interesting kind of passionate warning towards the end, and I was wondering if you could read that for us, and then we'll discuss it. I expect that some who read this chapter will not be convinced, if for no other reason than two millennia of dominant theological tradition in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam do not favor endorsing any variant of pantheism or panentheism over traditional theism. But if tradition alone is what constrains us in thinking about the metaphysics of the divine, we must ask ourselves at what point our commitment to tradition becomes idolatrous. John Bishop, Mark Johnston, and John A.T. Robinson have separately underscored the danger of idolatry in theologizing, and I would encourage my traditionalist interlocutors to ask whether, to the extent that they close off the embodied God thesis as an option, their own commitments to how we should constrain our understanding of the divine are possibly idolatrous. Dr. Bukharev, what do you mean by idolatry here? I mean, it's obviously not bowing down in front no. of statues. It's bowing down in front of a representation, if you will, right? And that's what I think statues... An idea. Yeah, exactly. Statues are one way of representing something that you take to be divine, whereas our ideas, right, in this case, of God are a way of representing the divine. The worry that I have... And I first became aware of this worry when I read John A.T. Robinson's much maligned book, <laughs> Honest to God. Maybe I'm not buying into everything that John A.T. Robinson is saying here, but he has a really good point here about idolatry. That's to say, our ways of thinking about God sometimes can, if you will, become our God. Has my idea of God become my God versus am I open to different ways of thinking about the divine so that I can get the best picture of what God is like? And I think if for at least now here, I'm speaking to people who are uh, religiously devout. If all truth is God's truth, then I don't think people should be terribly worried about if they reach conclusions that are contrary to maybe perhaps what tradition has taught because even if you look at tradition, tradition itself is something, when you look at its history, that is dynamic. And you look at traditional theism, for instance, and you compare what a lot of traditional theists believe today to what people were accepting and regarded as being the only views that were acceptable, say, a thousand years ago, they're worlds apart. 
So similarly, my suggestion to people here is, is look, don't close off pantheism and panentheism as options here, because perhaps these ways of thinking about God might give us a better representation of what God is like. But even again, now to the pantheist or panentheist who regards him or herself as religiously devout, I would say, again, don't treat that representation of the divine as somehow this is it, I've reached it, and now I'm not, I'm closed off to thinking about things in different ways. If we're concerned ultimately with getting the correct picture of what God is like, then I think we should avoid the temptation to turn our representations of what God is like into sacred cows. You're saying metaphysics and analytic philosophy are still relevant to what a person should think about religious matters. Yes, absolutely. Dr. Bucher, this book is the product of a multi-year project in philosophy of religion. Can you tell us what that is and how it got started? I uh, was in Oxford in 2007. This is the setup here. And I uh, encountered Eugene Nagasawa, my co-editor, at that meeting. And I went to his talk and we started talking about some shared interests that we had. In particular, actually, it started with talking about uh, the work of Shusaku Endo, a Japanese author. <laughs> went from there and we started talking about some shared interests in conceptions of God that were not really taken up very much in analytic philosophy of religion. We sort of left that conversation there at that point, and we had some contact over the next couple of years, but then we saw each other again in San Antonio in 2009, and that's when we decided that it was time to really try to uh, pursue the shared interest that we had in trying to promote thinking about ways of conceiving of the divine that are oftentimes marginalized or not taken up at all in contemporary philosophy of religion. So when we were in San Antonio at this one uh, meeting, we decided that we would apply to the John Templeton Foundation, from whom Eugene in the past had actually received some grants, and we thought we would apply for a grant and see what would happen. So we proposed a uh, project on exploring alternative conceptions of the divine, and uh, we were successful. <laughs> and the, the, the project was pretty modest at that point. The idea was just to hold a workshop at the University of Birmingham, which is where Eugene is, at the John Hicks Center for Philosophy of Religion get together the essays that people had contributed for that workshop, ask some of the other folks who participated in the workshop, but who perhaps didn't actually present papers to contribute to a volume and try to find somebody who would publish it. And thankfully, uh, Oxford University Press was interested and we managed to get that volume published. That then led to another project that we're now on, which is a little more focused. It's devoted just to pantheism and panentheism, but it's a bigger project. It involves two workshops, one at Rutgers, one at Birmingham, there's more money. It includes competition for stipends for people who are working on issues related to pantheism or panentheism. It's an ongoing thing. So it started again, really the idea for doing this kind of thing germinated back in 2007. And then uh, we really started doing something positive to get something going around 2009. And then we had that project for about three years until 2013. And now we're in the midst of a, another cycle. That's to say a, a new project. If anyone's interested at all in the latest project, you can go to our website, just enter into Google, enter Pantheism and Panentheism Project. Uh, you can read a bit more about the project, how it relates to our earlier project, as well as um, some more about the competition that we have for uh, stipends, the call for papers, for anyone who's actually doing research right now on issues related to pantheism or panentheism. Dr. Bukharev, thanks for talking with well, us. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. This is Modern Western Religion, a willingness to think for oneself and even to question one's own religious tradition. 
It's an approach to religion which is well aware of the competing ideas in the religious marketplace, and which often tries to perform a delicate balancing act between tradition and innovation, or between our scientific and our spiritual impulses. Lose your balance, and you can find yourself without a religious home. John A.T. Robinson was an Anglican bishop who in his 1963 book, Honest to God, proposed that the idea of a personal God was outdated. Robinson continues to have his fans, but 54 years later, I wonder whether belief in a personal God is really an endangered species. This week's thinking music has been Procreation by Little Glass Men. Be sure to check out the blog post for this episode at thinkingaboutreligion.org. You'll find there a whole bunch of links to the ideas and thinkers mentioned in this episode. This has been Thinking About Religion. Thanks for listening.